0: We have been at Bethel Bible Church since, since 2010. Since 2010, that's when we moved here. Uh, and I've been an elder for about half of that time, over half of that time. And so when you get comfortable in a place, you um, tend to become more vulnerable. And so some of this morning is going to be me being vulnerable. And so I have a confession to make, uh, actually, two. Um, I'm going to start with one and kind of drift into the other. The first confession that I have to make is, I have always dreamed of being in a boy band. <laughs> I feel so good to get that off my chest. Some of y'all who know me know that, but I want just—it's time for me to share with the masses, those here and those on the interweb. Uh, I've always desired to be in a boy band—the community, the brotherhood, the fellowship, the travel, the performance, the entertainment, the singing, the dancing, uh, making people happy is what I love to do, and I just think what better way than to do that than being in like the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. If you don't know who those are, think Beatles, the Beatles for the older generation, right? On the outside, one may think that these guys are a bunch of scrubs who aren't talented, who've just thrown on some matching clothes, have put together a few fun dance moves and are just barely getting by. However, upon deeper investigation, One will find out that there is incredible choreography, thousands of hours of voice lessons and immense talent and athleticism to put on a three-hour performance for hundreds and thousands of individuals. These people are professionals and they are in boy bands. They, uh, no matter what they say, the naysayers are going to say they don't matter. They're just scrubs, but they are people. And uh, I want to be one. Still, I, th- I might be past my prime at 46, married children of four, uh, but I'm still hoping there's still hope. So if you're out there and you're looking for a fourth or a fifth, I could be your guy. There are some in here that, aren't man or woman enough to admit that they too like boy bands. Todd being one of them, Sarah, Winfred, they're all over the place. If people would learn to be more vulnerable, Rico back there in the back, all day long. Confession number two, y'all ready? I'm just going all out, like I'm pushing all in. Confession number two, I love Broadway shows. (laughs) I did it again. It just feels so good. How many of y'all have ever been to a Broadway show? Okay, a good handful, probably 25 of y'all. Um, if you were like me, uh, when it was gonna be your first show or first play, you probably had something in mind like a high school theater class. Costumes are cheaply made, um, it won't be very well put together. Lines will certainly be missed, and acting will be maybe a C possibly a B. Well, holy cow, not so much. Uh, I'll never forget my first Broadway show. It's in Chicago. The year is 2008. Just newly married, got married December 07. It's the summer of 2008. Taylor, my bride and I, we decide we're gonna take an Amtrak train for the experience from Temple, Texas to Chicago to Chi-Town, Thirty hours it was amazing. we just did it one way we couldn 't take it back. We flew back um, uh, and i 'd never really been in a real theater before, and I was thirty one years old, like a high school cafeteria, of course i was i 'm in youth ministry, a high school auditorium, but in hundreds of those, a little community theater, um, yes, but I was blown away by the theater itself the ford theater it was called the oriental at that time and it was magnificent it was majestic and i we hadn't even started this show we were gonna see wicked has anyone ever seen wicked okay a good number of y'all moving right um, and so we're there within the first 60 seconds of a Broadway show, whether it's in Chicago or in broad, on Broadway or that Broadway show has come to Dallas or Houston, um, you know within the first 60 seconds that uh, it is not a junior high theater class, it is the real deal. They have hired the best actors and actresses and spent thousands of hours in preparation for this one moment. And my bride and I got to be there and it was a moving experience. Back in January, uh, we got to go to New York City and see Hamilton on Broadway, same thing. I mean, I am on the edge of my seat so engaged, so much purpose, and deli- that's so deliberate in everything that they do. And just like how many people look at boy bands or Broadway shows, you just don't know if you just don't know. From the outside, it may look like one thing, but with upon deeper investigation, there is more to it. And I think the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is a lot like that. We're in a summer series here at Bethel uh, called Summer Psalms. And where we're gonna look at the past few weeks, we've been unpacking each elder really who has been up here or pastor that has been up here, they've gotten to pick one of their favorite Psalms to unpack during their service. And so uh, when you sometimes when you think about the Psalms, Um, you you might think that they're they're second class or they're just thrown together. Being a Bible church, we love the entirety of the Bible, uh, but most of us, if you're like me, we certainly gravitate to the New Testament. Like that's where Jesus comes on the scene. That's where the cross is. That's where restoration is. That's like the money is there. And then you transition over to, Paul in the epistles, you're like, oh, man, I could get behind some Ephesians all day long. But there is truth and there is the gospel all over the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms. And so Psalms is full of shouts of anger, cries of despair, pleas of help, dancing before the Lord and praising God. You've seen it all summer and hopefully you're gonna see it today. And so where I am gonna be, we're gonna be in Psalm 103. So if you wanna go ahead and turn there, if you have the same Bible that I do, 1984 NIV edition, we're gonna be on page 902. This Psalm may have several stanzas in it that you uh, that may found, sound very familiar to you. You may have heard a verse, a stanza, a couplet, Uh, Before and wondered where it came from. Well, my hunch is that it's probably in Psalm 103. There's so much in these 22 verses. So it is 22 verses. The length of this psalm. Uh, has been determined by the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet, just like Psalm 33, just like Psalm 38. However, it is not an acrostic like Psalm 25 is. So think about the English alphabet. You have A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. Uh, Same thing, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 verses in this Psalm. And so we're gonna unpack them basically in six, in a segment of six, segment of six, segment of six, and then the last four verses. We'll lean real heavy on the first 12 um, as we move forward. But we see that here, David is, King David is deliberate. He has high intention and so much in design a lot like a boy band or a Broadway show. We think there's nothing there, but we're gonna dive in and see the heart of this king and how amazing he is and who he speaks about is God. And so this ain't no junior high theater. This is Broadway level stuff and chock full of God's breath. David is calling on all of creation to praise the Lord. That's how he's gonna launch out in this passage. This psalm is a celebration of deliverance, seems to speak to the answer to the prayer in the previous psalm, Psalm 102. And so I'm gonna read Psalm 103 in couplets, if you will, but before that, I'm gonna pray. Jesus, thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you for the New Testament. We thank you for everything from Genesis to maps. Lord, it is all God breathed and we get to, uh, to speak and mull and cultivate and turn all of that over and consider who you are. Thank you for this opportunity, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So Psalm 103 says this, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Here are his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all of the oppressed. Okay, that's good. Here we go. So this is a psalm of God's love and compassion for his people, obviously. Like, who doesn't want that? David begins this psalm with a command or invitation in verses one and verses two, where he says, "'Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being.'" Praise his holy name, praise the Lord, oh my soul, and don't forget. The reality is, is we could pause there in verse one and verse two and spend the next 45 minutes unpacking those two verses. And I'll say that three or four or five more times about things that I'm gonna read. They're just so deep uh, and have so much meat on the, in them. So he starts off with praise the Lord. and like what, 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 what does that mean? Sometimes you hear people like, praise the Lord, PTL, praise the Lord. And it's like, what, 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 are, we, what are you doing? What are you, what, what's going on right now? Um, is that with your mouth? Is that with your body? Is that with your mind, your whole being, your actions, your life? And I think that it's all of that. I think the answer is yes. Then he says, oh, my soul, all of my inmost being, Like not only externally, but internally, like who I am, the fibers that I am, the fabric of my entire being, this invitation, this command to praise him. David will begin and end this psalm with praise the Lord Oh, my soul bookends. He says it in verse one and he says it in verse 22 and everywhere in between, a lot like our days, this invitation to say it in the morning when we arise and we say it in the evening when we lay down and everything in between is an invitation to praise the Lord. And I think if we're honest that sometimes, a lot of times we don't do that. Even as believers, that might be the cry of our heart. Like, man, we can get up in the morning. We can spend time with Jesus. And it just, for me, it doesn't take long to like, enter the spirit world, to get angry, to get upset. Whether well, that's with my children or that's someone driving on Broadway. Sometimes I'm not praising the Lord when I'm driving on the Broadway. And so here, that's his invitation, right? You think about a tombstone, born 1976, died unknown. That dash in the middle, there's a country song that speaks about the dash. David is inviting us, verse one to verse 22, to live in this posture of praising the Lord. Paul David Tripp in his daily devotional, New Morning Mercies, which is my favorite, says this about praise or worship. He says, what you worship is not best shown on Sunday morning. What you worship is not best shown on Sunday morning, but demonstrated by your words and behavior the rest of the week. I mean, PDT, Paul David Tripp, he's like, ah, karate chop right here. He is so good. That should move you. That should convict you. Brennan Manning says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today, the greatest single cause of those who don't believe in Jesus are actually Jesus followers. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out that door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That too is. Is convicting, but King David invites us in all the way through from verse 1 to 22. This invitation, this command to come and praise the Lord. Paul David Tripp goes on to say this the word worship is widely misunderstood. Most of us hear the word worship and immediately think of some kind of corporate, formal, religious activity. Perhaps what comes to mind is a gathering of pilgrims to lay candles at the feet of Buddha, the singing of a hymn with a thousand fellow believers or a gathering of a small group on a Wednesday night. In other words, for most people, worship is a word that summarizes the outward spiritual activity of their lives. But the Bible employs this word in a fundamentally different way. The Bible portrays us not just as people who occasionally worship but as worshipers. No, this worship thing is much more foundational than that. We have been designed by God to be worshipers. This means that worship is first our identity before it becomes our activity. Let me rewind that and play that back for you. This means that worship is first our identity before it ever becomes our activity. The worship inclination or motivation that resides in all our hearts was placed there to draw us to God, the one to whom we were made to give our worship. There is no such thing as a non-worshiping human being. The only thing that divides human beings is what and whom they worship. And so we go back to verses one and two and we find out how do we do this? How do we praise God with all that we are, with our soul, with our inmost being? How do we praise him? And King David says, forget not, a.k.a. don't forget, a.k.a. remember If you look up on BibleGateway.com and you type in remember, it's going to show 231 examples of remember. And God was relentless in the Old Testament to his people. He he would save them, he would redeem them, he would restore them. And he would say, remember, just remember what I've done. Put together some rocks, tell your children, do this. And time and time again, they would forget. And I think the way that we're able to live a life, have a posture of praising the Lord with all that we are, is when we remember who he is and what he's done for us. And so David's gonna talk about those in verses three through six. He says in verse three, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases? That is certainly a benefit. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Again, part of being in a body for such a long time is you, you wanna be vulnerable, I think, being up here on stage. I feel like growing up in the church, I, and I never really got to... Um, See my, my priest, my pastor, talk about their brokenness, their struggles, their sin. I think it's so important because I think in the church, we think we come to church because we're perfect. Actually, that's not why I come to church. <laughs> I come to church because I'm broken and in need of a savior, right? And so verse three, King David's gonna say some of these things. And I'm like, yeah, what's up, bro? I agree with that. Then I'm like, oh, dude, I struggle with that. And verse three, who forgives all your sins? I know that all of my sins are forgiven. In the New Testament, Jesus, the sacrifice, his death, On the cross, I know what happened. Uh, Spurgeon, or one of those old wizards, he calls it the great exchange, right? Like we give God our sin and he gives us redemption and righteousness and salvation. And, And I believe that. I know what happened to me in my dorm room at Stephen F. Austin State University, October 1996. I know for a fact that my sins are forgiven and I wanna live out of that. Next, he says, and heals all your diseases. And I have seen people not healed, and I struggle with that. Seen old people not healed, at least here on earth. I've seen young people not healed, and I struggle with that. So I wrestle with some of these things that King David is saying, and I think that that's okay in verse five or verse four. He says, who redeems your life from the pit? Again, I go back to my salvation experience, me walking with Jesus. I know that when I die, I will spend eternity with Christ and Christ alone. Give me Jesus as Jonathan and the band sang. Like I have been redeemed and saved from the pit. I will reside with Christ. And then he says, and crowns you with love and compassion. And sometimes I don't feel, I don't live out of a posture of love and compassion. Sometimes I don't wanna put on that, 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 Jesus crown and live out of loving people who are difficult to love or who shouldn't be difficult to love, like my offspring. I wanna have compassion on them and I don't a lot of the time. So I believe this and I'm all for this and then I hear this and it's like, oh man, But that's why King David is saying, remember, remember who God is, remember who Jesus is, remember what he has done for you. And then verse five says, who satisfies your desires with good things. Man, good things. The reality is, is we all want good things. You want good things, I want good things, which in turn give us the good life. And yet God is unwilling to be our means to what we call a good life. Our relationship with him must be our definition of the good life. The truth is that most of us tend to turn to God. We tend to turn God into a delivery system. Amazon, not the river or not the boat trip that we go on, but the delivery system, the online shopping, that's ruined us, it's amazing. You get on your phone, tablet, computer, you say you want something, sometimes within hours, that puppy's being dropped off, not a real puppy. That thing, that item, that whatever it is you order, could be a puppy. Uh, that thing is being dropped off at your doorstep within 48 hours. I, I think that we want God to be like that. I know I do. I want a quick return, quick return on, on my investment with God. We fall into thinking of prayers is asking God to sign the bottom of our self-composed, self-oriented, individualized wish list, which on the Amazon, you can create your own wish list. People can look at that and purchase those things for you. We have our own wish list that God would fulfill, that he would buy into, that he would provide, that he would then deliver in our world on our doorstep. So many of our ideas of what the good life is don't actually have God in them. We envision the good quite apart from the grace of his presence, promises, and provision. It is the subtle belief that life somehow, some way can be found outside of him, that the world is capable of being our savior. And because we fall into believing that life can be, out, can be found outside of him, God isn't central to our dreams. For many of us, God's not even in our dreams. The only way he actually touches many of our dreams is that we see him as the delivery mechanism of the good life that we dream of and ask him to produce. He is not life to us, he's the deliverer of life. He is not the end that we hunger for, but he's but the means to the end that we crave. These good things in verse five that David speaks about actually come in a person and his name is Jesus. Jesus yes, it is true. Jesus is the good life that we need, no matter what is on our wish list. And so, uh, Question, I mean, so much of being, a, whatever, a preacher, a teacher, that is is speaking to yourself, right? I ask these things, a self introspection, like, what are those? What are those good things in your life that you're hoping for, that you're praying for, that are on your wish list that don't involve Jesus? I mean, is it? Comfort? Yeah, comfortable life. <laughs> Who doesn't want that? Is it happiness? Is it fulfillment? Is it obedient children? I have a six, eight, 10, and 12 year old at the house. And I think if I'm really bold enough to pull back the curtain on my heart, I, I- I probably care more about behavior modification than I do about sanctification. I just want my children to obey and get along. sometimes that is without Jesus. David then launches into some reminders to God's people and how he reminded Moses and the people of Israel in the next six verses. These are gonna sound familiar. There's gonna be six frame couplets basically broken into um, two at a time. So the next 12 verses, I'm gonna break them up into six chunks and then each chunk will be two or three couplets broken up in there. This first couplet, this first six passages, verses um, celebrate God's compassion on his people as sinners. These may sound familiar. Verse seven, it says, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Like there should be something in you going, woo let's go, that's what I'm talking about. Who doesn't want that? Really incredible. Again, those verses right there, we could spend the next six Sundays talking about, unpacking, diving deep in there. And the reason that verse eight sounds familiar is because that is what God shares with Moses as he hides him in the cleft of the rock, he's gonna pass by, and these are the things that he's gonna say about himself. I love that, verse 30, or chapter 34 in Exodus. This is Exodus 34, verse six. It says, as he passed in front of Moses, procl- and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And it's, the verse is in the middle of it, so I feel like I have to read the rest, which isn't as fun as a, and exciting. He says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And I think David is going to speak to that a little bit as he begins to talk about those who fear him so that's verse 8 verse 9 says he will not always accuse nor will his anger nor will he harbor his anger forever that's the blessing that is a gift that he's not going to always accuse although in exodus 34 we see that we see that that calling out that hey there's going to be some accountability but again jesus is going to intersect all of that now, verses 10, 11, and 12, um, David is going to use three very common words found in Scripture, found especially in the Psalms, that I want to bring clarity to. Sin, iniquity, and transgressions. They can seem like synonyms, that they're the same word, kind of used interchangeably, but there is a difference. For starters, sin is a really big deal. Sin is a really big deal. And sometimes I don't see it as such. Oswald Chambers says this about sin. We have to recognize that sin is a fact, not a defect. Sin is a red-handed mutiny against God. Either God or sin must die in my life. The New Testament brings us right down to this one issue. If sin rules in me, God's life in me will be killed. If God rules in me, sin in me will be killed. There is no possible ultimate but that. The climax of sin is that it crucified Jesus Christ. And what was true in the history of God on earth will be true in your history and in mine. Eric Barton, our pastor of the downtown campus, says there's basically three facets of sin. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. First one, sin. The Hebrew word is chata, C-H-A-T-T-A-H, chata. It means missing the mark or falling short. That is in relation to God's perfect law of instruction. Think of an archer going back, shooting an arrow, falling short, missing the mark. We think of Romans, right? So much of the Roman road is us falling short of who he is. That is sin, talking about God's perfect law, Exodus 20, the the 10 commandments, right? I think the 10 commandments were given to us so that we could read them and go, (laughs) like a mirror to see the dirt on our own face, that I have dirt on my face, and in turn, I am in need of a savior. So sin in relation to God's perfect law of instruction. Second, iniquity, this is hawan, H-A-W-O-N, hawan, Hebrew word, means inner corruption, twistedness, crookedness. This is in relation to ourselves, to our own self. So sin in relation to God's perfect law, iniquity in relation to ourself. Lastly, transgression, Pasha, P-E-S-H-A-H, P-E-S-H-A-H. It's a flat rebellion against God himself in relation to God. It's what Oswald Chamber talked about. It's a mutiny. It is a red-handed mutiny against God himself. So you have sin in relation to the law. You have inequity in relation to ourself. And you have transgression in relation to um, God himself. So we'll read verse 10. It says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, our sins missing the mark, falling short in relation to his perfect law. Or he doesn't repay us according to our iniquities, this inner corruption, this twistedness, this crookedness, the relationship to ourselves. So he doesn't, he doesn't uh, treat us as, as us missing, not measuring up to the law. He doesn't he doesn't repay us for what we really are due. Then verse 11, he's gonna slide something else in there. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for these four words, those who fear him. I don't know what you're studying this summer, but if you're looking for something to study, I would encourage you, invite you to do a word stay on what it means to fear the Lord to fear God. Well, what does that mean? It's a great word study. Notice the vastness of God's love, this spatial imagery of how high as the heavens are above the earth. We haven't even gone to the ends of our galaxy, solar system, all of that. It says that God's love is higher and grander, more spatial than that. Then in verse 12, he's gonna revisit. He's talked about sin, inequity. He's gonna come back or or include, grapple in transgressions. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This flat rebellion against God, this red-handed mutiny. He's gonna separate that. You wonder why David used the phrase, as far as the east is from the west and not the north is from the south. Oh, being a simple-minded man, I think it's that if you think about our planet, which I believe it's a sphere, um, that if you went from the South Pole north, you would eventually get to the North Pole and then you would begin heading south again, right? But if you begin heading east around a ball, you will always be heading east, unless you change directions. But if I'm over here and God is over here and my sin is headed that way east, it's never coming back around. It's never coming back around. And so that was seven through 12. Now we're gonna bust out into, I'm sorry, yeah, through 12. Now we're gonna check out 13 through 18 and then 19 through 22. These will really kind of be just a quick flyover. The first little seven through 12, uh, we spoke about celebrating God's compassion on his people as sinners. The second sings of his compassion on humanity as frail mortals and we'll see that right says this as a father has compassion on his children so the lord has compassion on those who fear him that's the second time of three that he's going to use that four word little stanza for he knows how we are formed he remembers that we are dust as for man his days are like grass He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, the third time, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So uh, David, I mean, David's real, real clear here. Life is short, we are frail, we will pass away. That's why I think he remembers, tells us to remember like, praise the Lord, oh my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. David talks about the frailty of humanity and then he's gonna invite the heavenly beings into praising who he is. In verse 19 through 22, it says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you, his servants who do his will, his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. And then here it is, the latter part of verse 22. Praise the Lord, oh My soul. He circles back around with that first verse. Praise the Lord, O my soul. So here here's a takeaway. Here's a take home. Something to talk about as you drive home, consider as you lay in bed tonight. We are all worshiping something. We all attach our identity, our hopes and dreams, our inner sense of well-being and meaning and purpose to something. We all give the functional control of our lives over to something. We all live for something. We all tend to surrender to and serve what we think will give us life. Scripture says that there are only two possible objects of worship. At street level, no matter what your theology is, you are either worshiping the Creator surrendering your life to him, or you are an act of worship of some part of his creation. Sin reduces all, sin reduces us all to idolaters. In some way, we all put ourselves other people or other things in God's rightful place. Worship, of worship of the one true and living God is the only place where life can be found in worship of anything else, is a pathway to doom. So today, every word that we say, every choice that we make, every action we take will be shaped by some kind of worship. Nothing depicts our need for the grace of Jesus better than the war of worship that will rage in our hearts today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this day that you have made. It's a gift. That's why I call it the present. We thank you for your word, for it moves us, for it changes us, for it invites us in, for it challenges us, for it convicts us. And I hope that, Lord, today that um, we would say yes to you. We would choose this day who we're gonna serve. Lord, forgive us for our... um, deficiencies, for our sin, for our thoughts, for my thoughts, for the dark corner of my heart. Lord, help us to draw close to you. It's in your name. Amen.